The manhunt for the last remaining suspect in a series of stabbing attacks in Saskatchewan ended Wednesday with the capture and death of Miles Sanderson. This brought an end to a horrific series of events that saw 12 people, including the two suspects, killed and nearly 20 people sent to hospital. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Earlier Wednesday, I caught up with Saskatoon Star Phoenix reporter Zach Vachera to discuss how the tragedy unfolded, what we know about the victims, and the looming controversy over Miles Sanderson's release on parole earlier this year. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, even Amazon Music. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Zach, like many Canadians, I woke up over the long weekend to read about the horrific news coming out of Northeast Saskatchewan. For people who haven't been following the story as closely, can you walk us through what transpired on the Labor Day weekend? I think the best way for me to do this, Dave, is to tell you about my Labor Day weekend. Okay. When we learned about some of the details of what had happened on the James Smith Cree Nation here in northern Saskatchewan, I was actually on my way in the opposite direction to Regina with some friends. We had agreed to go to a football game called the Labor Day Classic. It's it's the biggest football game in the Saskatchewan season. It's 33,000 people in Mosaic Stadium. And we've got this car full of reporters, and all of a sudden, everyone's phones start to explode. Mm-hmm. And we realize the depth and the gravity of what is happening. And so while on one half of the province, there's a, a football game of 33,000 people, Rough Rider fans, folks having drinks. On the other half, people are awaking to a scene of, of horror and, and, and great tragedy. What it's can't come to light since then is that in the early hours of Sunday, it's believed that two men on the James Smith Cree Nation began a stabbing spree, stabbing upwards of 20 people, nearly 30 people. They then continued, it seems, onto, or one of them continued at least, to the village of Weldon nearby. It's a community of about 200, 300 people, where there is at least one other confirmed victim. In total, 10 people have died so far, Dave. Mm -hmm. 17 have been injured. One of the two suspects, named Damian Sanderson, has been found dead on the reserve. He was injured. Police say they don't believe his injuries were self-inflicted, but right now we, we don't know exactly the circumstances of how he died. The other one, Miles Sanderson, as of this recording, is still at large. Police say he may be injured. There is a massive, gigantic manhunt on the James Smith Cree Nation Reserve here yesterday that we witnessed and, and were briefly caught up in after a reported possible sighting of Miles Sanderson, but it turned up empty. And right now, we just don't know where he is. So we have multiple incidents in these two locations, the James Smith Cree Nation and the tiny community of Weldon. Do we have a sense of how this all broke out? Like what was the initial incident that started all of this and how it transpired from there? Were any of these attacks targeted or were they all random? It's a great question. And I should say right here that the leadership of the James Smith Cree Nation has asked for quite a bit of privacy. Many people in this community are grieving, and they've asked to not speak to media at this time. Mm-hmm. And the same goes for the village of Weldon. You know, this is a small little town where everyone knows each other, and its defining feature are these are these twin grain elevators that are, are no longer in operation. You know, many folks are already very weary and wary of the media attention of, of essentially the entire world. So a lot of what we know has been from speaking to family members kind of on hearsay, but here's what I can kind of establish for you. We know the stabbing attacks began very, very early in the morning and sort of in the depths of the evening. We understand that, you know, they may have begun while some of the victims were in their beds or or about to go to bed. We know that some of the attacks were targeted and that they involved family members. For example, Miles Sanderson, who is still alive, 
One of the victims was a man named Earl Burns, who was his father-in-law. And we understand that Earl Burns, uh, he was a retired First Nations veteran, that Miles had actually previously attempted to kill him in, in 2015, according to court documents that we've since obtained. Some of the other stabbings appear to just have been random. We know that Wes Peterson, who was 78, he was a resident of Weldon, the nearby village. Mm-hmm. And you know the neighbors and folks that we spoke to here were under the impression that he was killed on his porch, essentially. And it's believed that it's possible that you know one of the two suspects, likely Miles, approached him and, and, and essentially stabbed him on his porch. So that's, I think, part of why the police operation response here has been as intense as it has, because we, you know, while some of the attacks have been targeted, there seems to be this implication that they're also willing to kill bystanders and strangers. I think that explains a lot of the fear and apprehension in this part of the world. Yesterday, when the manhunt was unfolding in the nearby city of Melford, uh, a few businesses locked their doors. I've talked to people on community who say that they're still very much convinced that he's out there. All that they want, I think, at this point is for this to be over so that they can go on with the process and the work of grieving and mourning. Mm-hmm. And I think it's hard to do that when your community is you know, put suddenly into a state of lockdown like that. We've learned the identities of more of the victims today. We had learned a little bit about some of the other victims kind of earlier in the week. What have we found out? Who are the people who were killed? I know you mentioned one of the victims in, in Weldon was, was quite a bit older. You mentioned that one of the victims, the James Smith Nation, was the father-in-law of one of the two suspects. What else do we know about the people who were killed in this tragedy? We know a little bit, and you know, I'll head this off by saying many, again, many family members are actually asking for privacy right now. So we, we expect to learn a lot more in the coming couple of days. Mm-hmm. We know that one of the people killed was a woman named Gloria Burns. I spoke to her brother, Dale Burns, and uh, another one of her brothers, Ivor Burns, who said that Gloria was an addictions counselor in the community. She is said to have become an addictions counselor after becoming sober herself after a substance use issue. And she was very beloved, it seems, in the community and elsewhere. She worked at what's called a scattered sites program in, in various First Nations. And she was working on the James Smith Cree Nation when all of this broke out. Daryl told me that they have a crisis response team on the community and that they take rotations essentially to be to see who is going to be the person on call in case somebody needs help, in case there's a moment of distress. And on Sunday night, it, Gloria happened to be on call. He says that she was responding to that incident, and, and that's when she was stabbed and killed. Hmm. She's being remembered as a, as a very selfless woman. The way that Daryl put it is that he sees it as his job now to pick up that torch and walk with it. We know that Lana Head was a security guard in the community. That was her main employment, and she was also a mother of two kids, I believe. We know that Earl Burns was a First Nations veteran. The Veterans Association here put out a statement about him, sort of you know, mourning his loss in the service. We don't know that much for sure about him beyond that, except that he was the father-in-law of Miles Sanderson. And then we know about Wes Peterson, who I've mentioned already. He was 78 years old, and he was a resident of Weldon. He's described as a very colorful and friendly character who is sort of a pillar of that community. One of the things he did was run a coffee row at a little community center in the village's kind of main area, just pretty much kitty corner from the post office. And I, I spoke to a friend of his named Ruby Works who said that Without fail, he would usually show up there at around 6 o'clock every morning to brew coffee for older men who lived in that community. It cost $2 a cup. They would come, sit, drink, commiserate, and that was that. He seems to have been very, very beloved in that town, and many people I spoke to were very very like saddened and shocked by his killing. As this kind of goes forward and, and some of the restrictions around media access begin to lift, I hope we'll learn more about these victims and that we can remember them more as people and not just as numbers. 
We'll be right back. You mentioned that businesses in Melfort, some of them had closed their doors. You mentioned that the communities are, are asking for privacy while they grieve. What is the mood on the ground? Like, have you spoken with the general public about how they feel about their safety in the wake of this, how they feel about the police response in the wake of this? What's the mood in the community? I think it really depends who you're talking to and where. I'm in the city of Melfort, which is 10, 15 minutes away from James Smith Cree Nation. It's very close by. Mm-hmm. Some businesses here, like I've mentioned, you know, they were locking their doors yesterday when this police operation was unfolding, and, and for good reason. There were dozens of police cars heading into James Smith along this road. They surrounded a structure there that we were able to see. We saw helicopters up above. There was an armored police vehicle that went in. That manhunt was triggered by what RCMP said were multiple reported sightings of, of Miles Sanderson in the community. But it turned up empty, and police later said, no, we don't actually believe he's there. Now I'm told there are far fewer police on the community, so it seems they're pretty confident he's no longer there or wasn't there in the first place. But people on the, on the, on the reserve itself are still tense. I spoke with one gentleman yesterday who told me quite plainly that he's traveling around in his pickup truck with a firearm because he's he's worried and he's scared. I spoke with another guy who actually, while the manhunt was happening, was traveling around on an ATV and I asked what he was doing and he says, well, I want to help them fund him because you know I'm not going to be able to rest properly until he is found. I think in Weldon, there's a lot of, of you know grief and fatigue from you know the amount of media attention that they've gotten. You know, I spoke to some residents on Monday who were, were frankly pretty frustrated with just the amount of attention that's come on to their very small community. Uh, I think they're needing some space and some time to grieve right now. There's a whole lot of very intense emotions and high tensions here, I would say. And I think everything's going to need a little bit of time to unpack. Mm-hmm. In terms of where Miles Sanderson is, that that's kind of the million-dollar question right now. The last sighting of him that police seemed to believe was credible was late on Sunday morning in Regina, which, again, is, is the other side of the province. It's where the Rough Rider game was happening. It's about three and a half hours south of Melford, if you book it. Yeah. So the question kind of becomes, you know, if he was indeed there, why did he travel down from Melford along one of the busiest highways in Saskatchewan to Regina? Did he remain in that community or did he go somewhere else? RCMP seemed to have believed at one point that he might have gone to Alberta, rather, or to Manitoba at one point. They extended the emergency alert that they first issued there. But they've kind of acknowledged that they don't really have a solid, tangible lead as to where he may be possible he's being helped. It's possible that he succumbed to an injury and is, and is dead. We may never fully understand or, or actually know. It, it's going to take some time, I think. And speaking of Miles Sanderson and Damian Sanderson, who was a suspect at one point, but has since been found dead, I believe he's also been implicated in some of the killings. Yes. What do we know about these two individuals? First off, we'll start with Damian. What do we know about Damian Sanderson? Well, what we know about Damian Sanderson is that he was a member of the James Smith Cree Nation, and he was a member of that community. We know that he doesn't have an extensive criminal record. Search of Saskatchewan Provincial Court records found only one incident of that, and it does appear to be for an attempted stabbing charge earlier this summer against Earl Burns, who, as I've, who, as I've mentioned, was the father-in-law of Miles Sanderson. Miles and Damian are brothers. We understand that they may have just one parent in common, and that's sort of their relationship there. Mm-hmm. As for Miles Sanderson... He has a much more extensive criminal record. I think it was something like 59 criminal charges against him that have been brought for a, a range of things, ranging from aggravated assault to attempted murder to you know, much lesser crimes from that. We know that he was given a conditional release while serving out a sentence of just under five years and so was you know, put back into the community. 
The parole documents that have been obtained do deem him as someone who has a high risk to reoffend, but seem to have concluded that there's a benefit also to releasing him back into the community. Off record, and when you talk to people who knew Miles Sanderson or had a relationship with Miles Sanderson, it sounds like he was battling with substance and, and drug addiction. Mm-hmm. You know, his parole documents note that he was a different person when he was intoxicated. I've spoken with people who saw him fairly recently and said that he appeared to be normal, he seemed to be doing well, and was making a real effort you know, to reconnect with his family. But they also said that he would be kind of touch and go and things would fall apart and come together like that. And the other kind of million-dollar question is exactly what triggered this violent event and this tragedy. And we may not know about that for for some time. I think everyone here is just sort of trying to grapple with what we do know. And if they don't find Miles or if Miles winds up dead, we may never quite know the rationale or what sparked this stabbing spree. That's right. So we have Miles Sanderson, who was released on a conditional release. He's serving a sentence. The parole board documents, as you say, suggested that there was a risk to reoffend, but there was a benefit for him to go back into the community. That obviously is the kind of thing that will spark a conversation about what's appropriate when it comes to parole, and it becomes a bit of a political football. What are politicians, both in Saskatchewan and nationally, saying about this case in relation to Miles Sanderson and his release? I think it's a challenging situation, right? And what we've heard from uh, the public safety minister federally, Marco Mendicino, is that there is a review being launched of that decision, basically saying, did we make the right call? I think it's worth considering that this was a hard thing, it seems, to predict, because even though Miles had an extensive criminal record, it had never gone to the point of uh, this level of murder and carnage. So, you know, whether there was any kind of indication that he would be in a position to ever do something like this, I I think is a question that we're going to have to kind of look at seriously. But obviously, it doesn't look good for the parole board now, given what they've decided to do. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard much in terms of official commentary from politicians on the ground here in Saskatchewan, mostly because I've just been hunkered down here in Melford trying to talk to people on the ground. Mm -hmm. But I I definitely think there are people in the community who want some answers about his release and, and why he came back and how it got this bad. One thing the community is also talking about, you know, I spoke to Daryl Burns, the the brother of Gloria Burns. He really wants the conversation, he told me, to be about, you know, the more systemic roots of these challenges and these problems in James Smith Nation. Sadly, this is a part of the world where tragedies like this are, are not totally unheard of. In fact, almost exactly a year ago, there was a double homicide on the reserve. And the way that Daryl Burns puts it is that he sees a lot of this as being products of intergenerational trauma mm-hmm. and the Indian residential school system and the fallout from that. He says resources are inadequate to help many people in the community who need it. There's not much of a conversation happening around substance abuse and the harm it's causing. He feels strongly that those should be some of the conversations that people are having forward. Yeah. And he kind of said that he feels that Miles Anderson is a victim too, in a way. And while I think many people will struggle to have any kind of sympathy for him right now, that's the way that Gerald Burns put it and what he believes the focus should be. Lastly, this tragedy is unfolding as Canadians are learning more about what happened with the RCMP investigation and response to the mass shooting in Nova Scotia a little over two years ago. And so the response to this, I can imagine, has been under the microscope. I know that you've been kind of hunkered down in Melfort and been on the ground. Have there been any concerns raised with people you've spoken to about how the RCMP had responded to this, whether people were alerted in a timely fashion? What we know for sure is that there was a roughly 90-minute window, give or take, between when the first calls came into RCMP 
and when the first emergency alert was issued, like give or take 90 minutes when this began to happen, maybe a little bit longer than that. So this all happened in a matter of hours that this massive province-wide emergency alert was sent out. And it was sent out everywhere. My impression, though, just from being on the ground here, is that RCMP seem that they're very reticent to repeat their mistake that they've been criticized for in Port Peak. That is, not sending an emergency alert in a timely way or not sending enough alerts. They sent out multiple alerts just on this one kind of investigation uh, throughout the weekend and into this week, when even for like reported or possible developments, like that manhunt I mentioned yesterday when they had this reported sightings, they sent emergency alerts all over the province, basically being like, hey, everyone hunker down and watch out. Mm-hmm. When there was a sighting in Regina, they sent another alert for that. And, and you know, those were tips, right? They, they maybe, you know, they might not have been entirely credible, but they still, you know, erred on the side of caution and decided to alert people about the possible developments going forward. And, you know, some might actually come back and say, well, you know, is there such thing as, you know, doing too much of that and actually, you know, creating more fear and panic in places. But clearly they're saying, no, we're staying on the side of caution on this one. We want people to be as informed as they can possibly be. I think the the question that will emerge in the future is what happened in those first few hours between when the reports began to come in and, you know, when RCMP decided to act. Could they have acted sooner? But clearly they want to avoid that comparison right now. Well, I know it's still a developing story many days after it first broke and there's lots to watch out for. So we'll be keeping tabs on the reporting by you and your colleagues in the Star Phoenix newsroom. Zach, thanks for your time. Thank you, Dave. Take care. Late Wednesday afternoon, Miles Sanderson was taken into custody following a highway pursuit during which police forced a stolen pickup truck off the road. Shortly after his arrest, he went into medical distress and was pronounced dead at hospital. Sources have told Post Media that it's believed Sanderson took drugs before he was arrested and overdosed while in custody. 10-3 is a production of Post Media, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Zach Vachera. More from him and more on this story at thestarphoenix.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.